I'm getting heart palpitations, but I can't leave. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Aaron Frost. Hello. Katia Eames. Hello. Joe Eames. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. This week we have a special guest, and that's Victor Sovkin. Hello. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Uh, sure. I'm Victor, and I work on Angular 2 at Google. The Angular core team is uh, very small, so everyone sort of has a chance to work on pretty much every part of the framework. But the two things I worked uh, most are dependency injection and change detection. Very cool. We're all pretty excited about Angular 2, so maybe we should just jump right in. <laughs> sure. So when we're talking about dependency injection, I mean, I know the pattern, right? You, you know, you pass in your sort of your constructor or your object, your class, your factory, whatever you want to call it. And then it does its thing to create instances or, you know, to act as a singleton to get work done. Mm-hmm. So basically, yes. So dependency injection is an overloaded term. It means a pattern. And it also means usually some sort of framework or a library that allows you to implement this pattern okay. like easily. In Angular, we embrace the pattern, and we also provide a module that allow you to that allows you to implement the pattern. All right. What are kind of the details to understand the library? Okay, cool. Uh, first, I want to say that why the pattern is important because often uh, when people write small applications, they sort of don't see the value in the pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the value is that you can depend on interfaces or like abstract classes or abstract ideas rather than on concrete types. And because you can do that with dependency injection. It leads to more decoupled code, so uh, you don't depend on concrete types, which enables the stability and all sorts of other great things. So that's why we believe in it. We want to enable the stability, and as a result, we are providing this module and sort of rely on this pattern. So in Angular 1, we actually had a few, or we have a few ways to inject dependencies into your directives or services. So some of the dependencies are injected by name 
So if you want to inject a service into your directive, you, you do it by name. But some other dependencies are injected by position or using some other mechanisms. For example, if you want to inject an element or attributes, you don't do it by name. You need to, it's like the third argument in the lean function or whatever. So we have like several mechanisms that allow you to inject dependencies into directives. Uh, so in Angular 2, we simplified it. And the way we do it in Angular 2 is we have one single mechanism. Everything you want to inject, any dependency, you always inject into your constructor and you inject it sort of by type. So it doesn't matter what it is. It can be a global service like a singleton or it can be an element or some other information like other directives around you. You always do it the same way you inject it into your constructor. So the DI module Angular 2 provides this facility and you don't have to worry about it. So you don't need to know how the module works. What you want to express as a developer is just the fact that you want to have that service injected into your constructor. And Angular 2, like magically, will find the service and will give you one instance. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you say inject by type, what do you mean by that? Okay. So the way it works in, in Angular 2 is all injection is actually token based. So you can provide a value and say that this object, I will give it certain name or identity and I will call it this. Yes. And then next time I did somewhere else, I will ask for the same thing and I will be given that object. But since we are, we like classes and we like TypeScript and all these sorts of things. Usually the identity of that thing that you want to inject matches the type of that thing. Imagine if you have like a weather component and you want to inject a weather service, you would just say like, I want to inject a weather service that function slash class slash type and it will be given to you. So this is sort of the default behavior, uh, but you can override it when this behavior is not sufficient or it's not powerful enough. So I'm wondering, with the dependency injection library in Angular, is this something that you could use in other projects? Yep. So basically, currently, we have di.js, which is not the library we use in Angular 2. It's a separate and external di library. And we have a di module in Angular 2 in the Angular slash Angular repo. So uh, we are going to extract the di module from Angular Angular repo and make it a, a separate and independent project. So you will be able to use it without Angular 2. Uh, but currently, it's inside the repo, so you can try to do it, but it requires some like manual work. So I work at a company called Domo, mm-hmm. and one of the guys on our front end, he's wicked sharp. His name is Merrick. Mm-hmm. He actually has our mobile web app running, and he's got DIJS running mm-hmm. with React. So it is something that's portable outside of like the Angular sphere of things. You can use it with other libraries too. And he actually really, really likes it. He's written a couple of blog posts about it that are very interesting. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we understand the value in having the DI module being like external. So people who use React or Backbone or whatever, they should be able to use that. And it, and it will happen in the near future. So do you want to talk a little bit about how Angular uses DI? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the patterns and things like that, but... Sure. Uh, I can talk about that. So the way Angular uses DI is as follows. So when Angular sees the component in your template, it will match the selector of the component and it will know that it needs to instantiate that particular type of component over there. And then Angular will check what kind of dependencies uh, that component needs because the component is being instantiated by Angular. So you are not in control. Yes. So Angular will go through all constructor arguments of that component. We will sort of identify all the dependencies and those dependencies can be like an element or some other directive around that component or a service. Angular will find all these objects for that component. If it's a directive, it will find the directive. If it's an element, it will be the element on which the component is positioned. And if it's a service, it will ask sort of like the injector object, which DI provides uh, for that service. So it will collect all these objects and will instantiate that component with all those objects. So 
These are things that are injected into the constructor of the component, right? Yep, yep. The only way to inject stuff is into the constructor. So but this isn't the same way that it worked in Angular 1. In Angular 1, it did the little magic of taking the function, two-stringing it, and then looking at the names of arguments. That was the most common way. Like you said before, there's some functions where it was, stuff was just injected by position, like uh, the link function, for example. Yep. So it's not working that way, correct? That's not how the... That, that is correct. Yeah, that is correct. We don't want to rely on that thing anymore because it's sort of fragile, and if you minify stuff, it doesn't really work. So there are a lot of problems with that approach. So instead, if you annotate basically your uh, components with types, and Angular will use those types to figure out what to inject. So the types, like, they are minification-friendly, so you won't have any issues with minification. So the name of the argument, basically, doesn't affect what's being injected. It's the type of the argument that affects what's being injected. So is this using the annotation specification that Angular sort of added and was doing in script and then merged into TypeScript, and now Babel has a little support for it, and then they worked with um, the Ember team, Cats over on Ember for sort of a unified thing that they want to get into ES7? Is that what we're talking about? It is related, although it's not directly that thing. It is related. Basically, the way it works currently is that every class or function, I will have an extra meta property where we store information, that meta information about its constructor. Uh, so even in ES5, when you don't have any annotations or like you just plain ES5, there is nothing there, yes? you can still define that property on that function, and Angular will look at that property and it will figure out what that function needs. So if you have TypeScript or if you have all these newer languages, then like the syntax will be nicer because this information will be in place. But we don't depend on those annotations. Those just provide nicer syntax, but you can use the same uh, stuff in ES5 or in ES6. Okay. So if you are authoring in ES6, then you would use those annotation syntax, right? But if you're authoring in ES5, then it's just a different property that you add to the, f yep, to the function? Yep. Is, yep. Is, uh, for a is you added to the constructor function, or is it added to the class? If you're writing ES5, you probably just have constructor functions because you yep. you, you don't have classes, so you add it right. to the constructor function. It's like a special property name? Yep, I think currently it's called parameters, or something like that. Hmm, okay. So it's actually very easy to do, and you can provide like syntax sugar to make it nicer looking, but there is nothing that really depends on ES6 or TypeScript. So it can work in ES5 very nicely. Like, let's say I write an ES5 class... Yep. It's just a, it's just a constructor function called foo. Yep. How do I decorate my class to become an injectable? Because so, not not all functions all want to have injectables. So what does the decoration like look like? Okay, cool. So there are two concerns here. One is you want your class to become an injectable, and the second one you want to inject stuff into it. So if you want your class to become an injectable, you need to register it in uh, the DI system. So it doesn't happen uh, like automatically. So you want you need to explicitly say that you want this class to be injectable in your application. And the way you do it in Angular 2 is components allow you to define what is injectable in that component and its view and it all its children. So basically, component will say that I, in my subtree essentially, yes, I will provide the following injectables. So let's say you have again like weather service and weather component. And a weather component can say, you know, in my subtree, any component can inject a weather service. This is a weather service, and this is the implementation of weather service. So if, if anyone asks, you'll get this one. Okay. So I've looked at a few Angular 2 examples and played around with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen yet the example of somebody registering a service like you're talking about. Is there examples that are out there on the web where people are doing this? 
I think so. I think even uh, if you go to Angular, Angular examples, I, I think we use this capability there because basically every time you need to inject anything, that's, you you have to do it this way. This is the only way to do that. So I'm sure there is an example. I can provide a link maybe so you can attach it to show notes or something like this with an example. Great. I'm thinking about Angular 1 versus Angular 2, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to decide if this makes things easier or not. Let me put it this way. It makes things more flexible, that's for sure. And I can talk about issues with Angular 1 injection, because there are a lot of issues when you go into like multiple teams or lazy loading. I think, in my view, it simplifies it because you have a single mechanism to deal with all your injectables instead of having multiple mechanisms. And having a single mechanism, for me personally, is just easier to reason about. So, so what are your multiple mechanisms in Angular 1, then? In Angular 1, like if you want to inject an element, you need to understand that it will go to a link function. Yes? And if you want to inject a service, it goes to a separate place. So in your directly uh-huh. definition object, there are multiple places where injectables come, like sort of be injected. So when you test, you need to be aware of what's happening. Yes? Whereas now, when you instantiate a component, everything you need to know just goes into, the, like, into that component. Yes? You don't need to know anything Angular-specific, like when exactly it's going to be provided or in what way. There is only one mechanism, one place to put all injectables into Cool. So you actually said something that this show is not about, but I want to take mm-hmm. advantage to ask you. Yeah. You just said something about lazy loading, which that's not a real thing in Angular 1. So can you talk about that story? Because that kind of sounds interesting. Okay, I can talk about why dependency injection in Angular 2 is better for lazy loading. Okay. Because uh, in Angular 1, one of the problems with lazy loading is how dependency injection is implemented. Okay. And to understand that, let's start with this. So DI, dependency injection, in Angular 2 is hierarchical. What I mean by that is that instead of having one like pool of objects or injectables, you actually have a tree of injectors. So every component can say, you know, like everything downstream can get this extra object. So basically, your component tree, in a way, matches your injector tree, if it makes sense. So what happens if you have an application where you want to lazily load certain parts of that application? Let's say when you navigate around. Yes, when you navigate around using the router, you want to lazily load certain parts of that application. If you have one injector, like an Angular one, one global pool of objects, what should happen? Yes, if I go to route A and then route B, and let's say, and then route C or whatever, and let's say route A declares a bunch of services, should those services be just merged into my global one single injector? If it happens, then depending on how I navigate my application, I may end up with a different set of services. So I may go A, like A, B, C, and then A, D, C, and C will behave differently depending if I went there through B or through D. And this is because you have only one place to put all these services in Angular 1. In Angular 2, that's not the case. In Angular 2, when you lazily load stuff, what happens is you attach a child to the injector. So you don't affect anything else in the application. So when you lazily load around a certain part of your application, you define services only for yourself inside the sub application, but not outside. So it okay. means that lazy loading can be implemented in a safe way. So regardless of how you navigate around, route C, the, the, the end result, will always have the same set of injectables and will behave the same way. Okay, cool. That's interesting. I'm excited to see that kind of support like natively in Angular. That'll be cool. Yeah, so that's one of the goals actually we have is that for this uh, type of injection, hierarchical injection is lazy loading. We want to enable lazy loading. To do that, we need to be able to create a trio of injectors rather than a single injector. 
But that's all transparent to us, to like the regular coder. You, it's all taken care of inside of Angular, true? Yeah, that, that is correct. So if, okay. if you as a programmer, if you want to build it like Angular one way with a single injector, you can still do it. Then if you lazy load, you don't need to do anything special and like think about it. I mean, it's probably a good idea to be aware of what's happening, but yeah. there is no extra work required from the developer. Okay, cool. That's good. I think if you had to know about it, that would like increase the barrier to entry. And I think that's nice that you don't have to know about it, but it's good to, you know, eventually get in there and figure out what's going on. So that's a cool addition to the platform. I like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, one other thing that I've seen dependency injection used for is mm-hmm. basically to provide a simple interface for injecting test classes or essentially mock objects that short circuit certain things so that you can yep. test behaviors without testing the entire stack. Yep. How does this dependency injection change or affect the testing story with Angular 2? I think the testing story will, will remain sort of the same in a sense that in Angular 1 it is possible to sort of replace anything in your application in a framework is because it, it heavily relies on dependency injection. And in Angular 2, it, it will be the same, meaning that you can replace any part of your application or any service in your application with a different service when you test it. And that's actually what we do internally when we test Angular 2 itself. We use DI and we can swap like a template loader, for example, yes, with a dummy template loader because we don't want to go over the network and fetch some template. Uh, so it will, it will be the same. So one of the things that is nice in like a compiled server-side language when you're testing is using constructor injection. When you go and you test the class, you create the class manually in your test, you just provide the yep. dependencies for it. With Angular 1, testing it was not dissimilar depending on the story, like with controllers, mm-hmm. for example. You just had to create a little object that had properties that had the right names, and then you tell that, hey, use this, and then that's what it would mm-hmm. use. Is that pretty similar in Angular 2? Oh, it is better in Angular 2. Okay, this part is better. Because all your dependencies go into a constructor. If you want to test that object in like isolation, like in real isolation, without Angular at all, yes, and then you can just new uh, like instantiate an instance of that object uh, of that class, sorry, and you just mm-hmm. pass all the dependencies directly into the constructor. So oh, it is right. better. It is the same as in Java or in any like server side language. Cool. I'm really interested to start talking about Angular 2's change detection. All right. Uh, so can you give us like an overview? Of okay. What's sure. different about it? New and Okay, cool. I can do that. So basically, the goal of change detection is to sort of power data bindings. So when you have data bindings in your template, like something should check if the value has changed, if the expression changed, yes, and update the directives and components and the DOM. And that's what change detection does. It goes through everything and checks everything. If it detects changes, it will update the target, the DOM or the directive. So what's different in change detection, in the change detection module Angular 2, is a bunch of things. First of all, it is much faster because we re-architected everything and it is faster for a couple of reasons. So I can talk about it, why it's faster, if you're curious. Yeah, please. All right. So it is faster for a few reasons. And basically, if you think about an Angular application, there's lots of bindings in it. with like thousands of bindings. The performance of change detection uh, can be ex- expressed as sort of the number of bindings in your application times the em- average time it takes to check an individual binding. Because basically, Angular, every time a browser event happens, it goes through every single binding and it, and it checks it. That's, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And there are good reasons why we have to do that. Because in Angular, we allow you to use any object, any mutable, simple, JSON-like object. You can use it. And if you do that, then we, we don't have enough guarantees to be smart. Yes, we need to basically go and check everything. So there are two ways to make this process faster. The first way is to say, 
let's just make chicken binding faster. You know, figure, be very smart, think about it very hard, and make chicken individual binding faster somehow. Mm-hmm. And the second one is to say, let's be smart about what we check. Let's not check every single binding every single time and try to be smart about that. And we actually worked on both parts. So we made chicken individual binding significantly faster in Angular too, because we sort of understood how virtual machines work. Mostly Mishka understood how virtual machines work. And he told me, and we sort of figured it out. And why it's faster is, if you imagine a binding in Angular 1 that looks like this, like person.name, let's say we have person.name binding somewhere. The way Angular 1 will evaluate this binding to get the value of it, is it will get a getter for person, so to get the person from some context, from scope. Yes? And then it will get her for name, and it will invoke that getter to get the name of that person, which is pretty cool. So basically, we need to get a getter for every property read. Uh, the issue with that is virtual machines, they don't like this kind of code because those getters become polymorphic invocations. There are different shapes of objects that go into those getters. Virtual machines cannot optimize this kind of code very well. Uh, so in Angular 2, we do a completely different thing. So what we do is we look at all the bindings in your component, we look at your template, we analyze it, and we generate a function at runtime behind the scenes that sort of checks your template on your component, but without getting those getters. Basically, we generate a, a function that looks what you would write by hand if you would to implement change detection for that component. Mm-hmm. So we generate a function per component. So every component has its own change detection function. It happens at runtime, so you don't need to worry about it. What it means is that virtual machines can figure out what's going on because they know that that component has only, for example, has a field person. They know that person is always of type person, so they can be smart about it. It allows us to basically replace most of the polymorphic calls we had in Angular 1 with monomorphic calls, which are extremely fast. And we are talking about like 5 to 10x faster. So for every single binding in your application, regardless of what you write. So you write your application and it becomes 5 to 10x faster just because we are being more smart and more aware of how virtual machines actually work. And the second thing we do is we're trying to not check every single thing every single time. And to do that, we ask the developer to provide us extra guarantees. So you as an application developer can say something about the objects you use in your component. So you can say, for example, that those objects don't change. And like, oh, they don't change, nice, we don't need to check them. Unless you replace the whole object, we don't need to worry. And we can say, you know, those objects are like backbone observable models. So they will push your notification when they change. And Angular can be like, that's great because I don't need to check the template again until one of those objects there changes. So that's the second part of what we do. So we, the first part is basically we have been just faster for every single binding. And the second part, we allow the developer to give us more information about what kind of guarantees their models provide. And then we use those guarantees to not check the same thing over and over again when it's not needed. So let me see if I understand this. In order for me to help out Angular 2 to be faster, I need to either use an immutable in certain places and then tell Angular 2, hey, this here, this object, this is immutable. Or I need to use some kind of an observable. Is it any kind of an observable object or does it have to be just the observables that are... It is actually any kind of. So we, we provide a generic mechanism. So you write sort of a small adapter to tell Angular how your observable works, but it can be any type of observable. Doesn't uh, Aurelia have a very similar mechanism to it? It is a similar mechanism. So the granularity is different. So our mm-hmm. granularity is per component, which is very similar to how, for example, React does it. And mm-hmm. I think that, that granularity in Aurelia is per binding, as far as I know. Mm. So one thing that I'm kind of gathering from this is that in Angular 1, if I wanted 
the sort of change detection and update something else in my template, I had to set up an ng-model and then tell it that it, you know, it had to care about both of those places. In this, it sounds like it's more automatic, or am I completely missing the point? I think that uh, there are two points here. So the first one, an Angular one, you do use ng-model if you want to get the data sort of from the DOM back to your component. So mm-hmm. if you want to push data from the component to all your directed, sorry, to the DOM, and then you want to get the data back. Right. So basically in Angular 1, these two concerns are sort of merged together, and it's hard to see like when you're pushing data uh, like to the DOM and then when you're getting the data back. And in Angular 2, those two concerns are sort of uh, a lot more explicit. So there are ways to do what ng-model does in Angular 2, and, but it's, those ways are built on top of change detection. So it's not the change detection itself. You have an extra module, which we call forms. The goal of that module is to provide facilities like ng-model. Hmm. Okay. Cool. So how do you tell Angular that a piece of data that you're using is immutable? Okay, so the way you do it is very similar to the way you do it, for example, in React. You're saying that this component uh, depends only on immutable data. So in your component's annotation, you can specify that it depends on immutable data, and Angular knows that this component, all its models, basically all its models are immutable. So you can still update the component, you can replace the model, but you provide the guarantee that the object you receive will not change. And you do have to do that. It's for all models within the component. You can't say some models within the component are immutable and some are not. It has to be all models within the component. Yes, currently it has to be like your, the whole component becomes sort of immutable aware. So it's not mm-hmm. like an individual model, but you're saying if I have a large application and, uh, like because components are those building blocks, components are supposed to be very small. Right. So the way you write components, you're supposed to put like a few lines of code there and here you go, you have a component. So component granularity is actually not uh, that bad. And the, like the React community actually showed that. Yes, when in their case it works per component and it, and it works nicely. I want to clarify this. So you said components should be very small, but components can also be very large because they can collect up a whole bunch of other smaller components, right? That is correct. So sort of the whole application is a giant tree of components. So you start right. with very small components and on every single level, you're supposed to have small components in a sense that doesn't do much except to delegate to other components. Yes. And eventually, you'll have your application. But so on any given component, you say, this component's data is immutable. Yep. Now, in JavaScript, there, correct me if I'm wrong, there isn't really a way to, sit, to actually force data to be immutable because it's just JavaScript objects. So in that case, you just have to make sure that you never mutate the data yep. incorrectly. So you provide this guarantee. Right. For example, let's say you receive an immutable list from a mutable JS library, yes? You can still mutate stuff around because the JavaScript language is so uh, flexible. You can still do crazy stuff. So, but you're saying, you know, I mean, the way the list is structured and the way I use it is, is all right. Yes. Trust me, mm-hmm. it will never change. But uh, if immutable is, for example, provide an extra guarantee, which I think they're going to do, the guys behind immutable JS, if they provide a guarantee that the list constructed is truly deeply immutable, we can detect those kind of things automatically. And we can tell, well, we know that immutable JS, deeply immutable lists are good. So, you know, if we do that, we won't have to ask you to annotate your components. Now, are you talking about immutable JS that's done by the Facebook team? Yep. yep. Talk about that yeah. library? Yep. So is that a library that you anticipate people will end up potentially using within Angular 2 for their data structures if they want to make them immutable? I personally like this library a lot. I'm not sure what's going to happen because, like, I don't know what people will choose. But if I was picking a library, I would pick that library. Yeah, I've I've seen some blog posts recently where some people were kind of showing some performance they got by using Immutable JS and yep. a couple of things they had to change in order to use it, and it was pretty awesome. 
the performance gains they were able to get out of it. And, and like they explained that they went from like an N plus X to like a zero cost on a check for yep. a, an entire list of a thousand things. You had a zero cost check on it because yep. you knew the list was immutable. The length, all I had to check was the length at that point, which was super simple. So Yep, yep, exactly. That's basically what we want to do in Angular too, like all yeah. the time. I think you'll see a lot of projects come out with DIJS and ImmutableJS and all these separate things kind of coming into default Angular apps, which is cool, which is really yep. cool. I had a different question. So I know that the concept of scopes is disappearing, and in Angular mm-hmm. 1, if I did something in a jQuery plugin or with like a WebSocket that was outside of Angular, and I needed now Angular to apply that, I would call a scope apply, right? Yep, yep. How do you apply, without a scope, how do you tell Angular to do its thing in Angular 2? Okay, so Angular 2 is built on top of zone.js, or zones.js. And it's basically a library that Brian Ford uh, put together. And what it does, so basically let me prime you first. So if you know what uh, dynamic bindings are, in Lisp or thread locals in Java or domains in Node, that's basically what zone.js is, but slightly different. What it allows you to do, it allows you to intercept when you enter and leave the zone. So Angular can start, when you bootstrap an Angular, Angular can say, you know, I'm going to start a new zone called Angular Zone. So every time you schedule an async operation from within the Angular, it will be scheduled in that zone. So when the async operation is done, Angular will know. So if you, like, for example, create an HTTP request from Angular using some third-party library, Angular will know that you created that request. It mm. will know that you uh, schedule that callback, so when that callback is done at the end of that VM turn, Angular will run digest and will flush the changes. So in mm. theory, you shouldn't do anything. So everything should just work sort of automatically for you. So no need for scope to apply anymore, basically. Okay, that's good because at least where I like things that I've been in, mm-hmm. people are really like irresponsible with scope apply. Like the other day, I saw this thing coming back from a WebSocket, and it had like let's say it had. A, 20 things in it, like it was mm-hmm. an array. Yep. And they processed each of the 20 things, and in the processing, that had an async call in it. And after every async call, they reapplied. So, like, they would apply 20 times for this yep. this one array, which was, like, crazy that they were doing something like that. Yep. But, yep. but you're saying Angular 2 is going to, like, manage that for us, so you're yep. going to save us from ourselves a little bit, which is awesome. Yep. Yeah, you, you shouldn't worry about it. Obviously, uh, there might be some issues currently because it's still in the works, but the goal is that you should be able to integrate with any third-party library and do any async operations, and it should just work. Mm, yeah, so another cool. thing I'm interested in and has mm-hmm. to do with change detection a little bit is if you have a binding, yep. right, and that binding is some kind of a calculated value, you know, like full yep. name, right? Yep. And it's composed of the first and last name. In Angular 1, you have that, maximum 10 loops scope where if you ran through and changed the first name, but the full name had changed and you hadn't detected it, you run through again and decide, oh, full name has just changed. So it goes through the second and then it goes through a third thing, sees that nothing has changed, that third digest, nothing's changed. How does that work in Angular 2 to deal with uh, these calculated bindings? All right, so it it is a lot more explicit. So first of all, in Angular 2, and same as in Angular 1, Change detection runs at the end of the VM term. So this is the first important thing to understand. Wait, that, say that again. T- change detection runs when? At, at the end of the VM term. So basically when all microtasks are done, when browser is almost ready to paint, change detection runs, flashes all the changes, and then the browser paints. 
uh, like uh, basically update the view. And in Angular 2, what's also very important is that the two-way binding that you see in Angular 1, they are a lot more explicit. So you have the square brackets that indicate the data goes into a component, and then you have parentheses in the template syntax that indicates the data comes out of a component. So those two-way bindings are a lot more explicit, and the two phases in Angular 2 are actually like separate. So you still have two-way binding behavior, but the two phases are separate. So first we do the digest phase when we flush all your changes from your model onto the view. Yeah, so we go through all square bracket bindings and we update all the DOM and other components. And then when an event happens, like for example, a click or a key up or whatnot, the second phase runs, which is called an action phase. The action phase updates your model. So you have sort of this giant loop. Yes, so you do the flash. Then if something happens somewhere, it will update your model and then you, another flash will happen. And angle one is not like that. And angle one is sort of interleaved. You don't know what's been updated uh, when stuff changes. Mm. What it means is that when you have stuff like full name, yes, the way it will happen is it will go through your template. It will see the full name with like first name and last name. It will get the values, like the current values of first name and last name. It will calculate the full name. It will set the full name, let's say in the DOM somewhere else yes, or mm-hmm. in a text node. And then if something changes, like the first name changes, it will be another event. It will be another browser event. So Angular won't change it implicitly. It will, ha- it will have to be another browser event. And when the browser event happens, it will apply change to the model, and then another flash phase will have a digest phase where it will happen. The important idea here is that the loop that you see in Angular 1 is not present anymore. So we don't run until everything is stable because we assume, because we don't change the model ourselves, and we actually guarantee the order of the things the way they change, that the system gets stable after a single pass. So because we don't have loops in our sort of change detection graph anymore, the system gets stable after a single pass. So the need for this, you know, multiple iterations of the loop is not there. So we do it only once. And then if something changes, there will be another path through the tree, through the change detection tree. But it's a separate uh, VM turn. It's not part of the same loop. I know it's a little bit confusing. Uh, it will be easier to, to draw on a whiteboard and show how it all interacts. The bottom line is the loop is not there uh, anymore. I know you have a blog post on your blog about change detections in Angular. Does that kind of go over this? Yes, it does go over this. I have a bunch of blog posts that cover this particular topic because I think it's an interesting topic. So I can link those. And I actually gave a talk at NGCon that covers this kind of, not the detail, but sort of touches on this. Mm-hmm. So if you have some variable, you can still bind the output of a function to a text node, right? Yep. So can you have two different functions that, you know, you can shoot yourself in the foot as it calls one function to get the data to bind out. It actually mutates some value that a different function depends on. And then when you call that function, it mutates the original value back or the value on the first. Can you shoot yourself in the foot that way, yeah, I think? That's, is it a, that's a very good question. Basically, as I, as I said, there are two phases in Angular 2. The action phase, when an event happens. And during action phase, you can do whatever. Yes? It's really like your application can update anything you want. Mm-hmm. Then the next phase, when Angular goes through your component tree and updates DOM nodes and directives, that phase is controlled. What we are trying to guarantee is that you can update your children in the tree. So a component can update a component that it contains, but you cannot update your parents. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so what will happen in the dev mode, because Angular runs in two modes, in dev mode and production mode. In dev mode, Angular will go through your tree, and then it will go through a tree again, making sure you didn't change anything. Because if you change anything, Angular will know, and it will tell you that it's not, like you are changing your parent, basically. You are violating this contract we had with you. In oh. production mode, we don't go through the tree twice because it's obviously slower. Yes? In, if in the dev mode you don't see exceptions, you're probably good. 
But we are trying to guarantee that because when you have this kind of model, first of all, it's much easier to reason about what changes during this automagical uh, like phase. And also, it's a lot more performant. Right. So two things interesting there. One is in the dev mode, if you do go through a second time and see that something's changed, does it actually like throw an error? It throws an exception. Throws yep, an exception. Throws and Angular's yep. like not working and you see, oh, my site's broken and you go uh, look in your console and figure it out. Yep. If you do it in your unit test or like when you write in your end-to-end test, you should see an exception with a binding. It will tell you in this binding of this component, something changed when I went, like the Angular went there a second time. Please make sure you don't change your parents. Right. And then the other thing that I, this is news to me is you said there's a production mode and development mode. So is there like a switch on Angular 2 where you say, all right, go ahead and act in production mode? Okay. The way it works is because we have those uh, type annotations for TypeScript, we sort of have to have two modes because verifying those t- type annotations at runtime is actually pretty expensive. So we don't want to do it in production. Yes. You want to get the feedback while you're developing, but you don't want to slow your application by a factor of like five when you run it in production. So because we already have Devon production modes just to support type annotations, we decided to use this idea of Devon production modes when you, like for change detection and for other things too. So in dev mode, we give you more information, bigger exceptions, long stack traces and all sorts of things, which you don't want to do in production because they're expensive. And the way you do it is you have two different builds because you actually need to build Angular. Like when you build your application, you specify the right flag. Basically, you specify, I want to build it in a dev mode or I want to build it in production mode. And depending on how you build it, you will see uh, all this extra stuff, all you want to see. That make hmm. sense? Yeah. That's very interesting. It is very interesting. I think it makes sense. Like, Dart has like a similar thing, right? You have this write time and dev time type system and, and overhead, and then it compiles and it's a different system yep, for exactly. runtime to be optimized. That's cool. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good idea because you want to give the developer a lot of like help, but you don't want to slow down your application when it runs in production. Yeah, but it's okay to slow them down during dev time. Yeah, exactly. Is actually, yep. a really cool idea. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like that. It is awesome. I still am curious, like, how exactly do you tell it now that I'm in production mode? So basically, the way we do it currently is we, uh, we have a special helper function that will try to do an invalid type assertion. It will try to assign basically a string to a number. Yes? Mm-hmm. And in dev mode, it will throw because it will tell you that string is not a number. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, you're probably in, in the dev mode, just because type assertions don't work in production mode. And those type assertions are enabled by how we compile your application. So you, mm-hmm. you can compile it in two modes. That's cool. Huh. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's way cool. All right. Well, anything else we should jump on before we get to the picks? This Aaron? is a really deep episode. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I was, like, struggling. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and, and yeah. like, re-listen and fiddle with stuff. Victor, you did great. Like, you did a lot of uh, nonstop explaining. You did a really good job. Thank you for coming, man. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'll provide a lot of links. I'll provide a lot of links, so hopefully if you, like, listen to the episode and then read all the links, you'll have enough information to be, like, you know, to understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, Aaron, you got some picks for us? Yeah, I'm just going to do a pick today. It's a book. I can't stop reading it. It's like one of the most intense books I've ever read. It's it's a book about a little girl who was kidnapped. Her name is Elizabeth Smart, and it's called My Story. And in, I'm actually doing the Audible book, and it's very interesting. I've never read a book where it was a biography, and the person who it was about was actually doing the, the Audible narrating. So she, she narrates her own book, and her experience was horrifying. As a father of a daughter, it's just like I can't – it's like one of the most intense scenarios ever, like – 
it's really crazy, but it's a really good book. She's got a lot of heart and the way she comes through it all is just kind of inspiring. So it's called my story by Elizabeth smart. That's my pick. Yeah. I read that book too. It's, it's pretty heart wrenching and I hate thinking that I wish ill on anyone, but that one got me pretty close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But at the same time, I mean, she's a well-adjusted adult. She's married. She served a Mormon mission and, so it sounds like she has dealt with what happened and, and so it's, it's inspiring in that way, but yeah. Yeah. Joe, do you have some picks for us? You bet. So I just spent the weekend in New York and I ate a lot of delicious food. And one of the foods that I ate, which I sometimes eat here locally in Utah, those are very limited number of places you can get it. But in New York, it's just 10 times better with shawarma. And I will admit, the only reason I ever tried shawarma was after the first Avengers movie. Did you go to that actual shop where they filmed that no, scene? Or? No. It's like in Brooklyn or something. Yeah, the scene in the shop is not filmed at like an actual location in Manhattan, I think. Anyway, shawarma's awesome. I went and had shawarma. It was delicious. So if you've never had shawarma before, find a place near you and go eat shawarma because it's awesome. That's my pick. I don't even know how to spell that. S-H-W-A-R-M-A. Just like it sounds, huh? <laughs> kind of like it sounds. It's just, you, you wouldn't think with the, being in a you know, foreign food that it would actually be spelled like it sounds, but that's how it sounds. Shawarma. Got it. Katya, what are your picks? I have two. The Disney, both of them are Disney. One is the movie Home. That's not Disney. That's not Disney? It's DreamWorks. No. DreamWorks. That's DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. They're like the same thing. They're both animated. <laughs> there you go. They both have to do with animation. One is the movie Home because we went and saw it yesterday and it was the most adorable thing that I have ever seen. And then the other is Mulan because they're making a live action Mulan movie. They are? Yeah, they're, like, they are. Like they do with Cinderella. It's like next year or the year after. I'm really excited. I hope that they actually cast a Chinese actress to play a Chinese character, but <laughs> Never my hopes aren't happen. high. That's a stretch. My, this, my hopes aren't high, but this I'm is hoping. Hollywood. Come on. Yeah, let's get down to business. To defeat the Huns. <laughs> so sings Donny Osmond. That's right. <laughs> you can call me Donny. Yeah. All right. I've got a few picks here. The first one is a book that I just finished. It's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's kind of a classic, and I don't know why I had never gotten around to reading it before, but it was really good. I need to go back and reread it, pay a little closer attention to some of the points in there, but it was terrific. Yeah, because you're kind of a jerk, so... I know. Be a good idea. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. <laughs> Another pick that I have is Workflowy. It's kind of the new task management thing that I'm using these days. The thing that I like about it is it's mostly free form. I tried using OmniFocus. In fact, I've, I've used it off and on for years. And the issue is, is just that I never really stick to it. And I don't know if that's just a habit issue for me or an actual issue with OmniFocus, but I've used several others off and on over the years, and none of them have really stuck. So I'm trying this one, and I'm liking it so far. And related to that, I have a couple of books that I'm going to pick, and I read both of these while I was in Las Vegas for MicroConf. The first one is Habit Stacking, and the idea is is that instead of trying to just build one habit, you can build multiple habits by building the habit of having a routine. And so you start your routine in the morning and then you just work through all of the habits that you've stacked up. He recommends that you keep your stack shorter than a half hour. 
and that you start with one. And so then what you can do is you can have a routine in the morning, maybe a routine in the evening, and possibly a routine at lunch or whenever makes sense for you to go and do things that you need to regularly work on or get done. So just to give you an example, my morning routine starts out with me waking up, I brush my teeth, I have a drink of water, and then I go downstairs and get something to eat. And then I usually wind up feeding my kids breakfast. So I set out the dishes for breakfast and pour the cereal. I just don't pour milk on it. And then I go to the gym. And that last bit is just driving to the gym. And that leads to the other book that I'm going to recommend, and that is Mini Habits. And Mini Habits, the idea is, is that you do the smallest possible thing to basically start whatever habit you want to start. And so the idea there is I just have to drive to the gym. I don't actually have to go in. I don't have to work out, but I have to drive there. Of course, realizing that I just, once I get there, I'm going to go in, you know, and I know that in my head, but the idea is, is that if you set your habits to be something really small, really low energy, low impedance, then you meet less resistance in your head to do it. And so some of the other ones that they recommend are things like doing one push up or writing 50 words, or, you know, anything else that you can do in just like a half a minute. And so if you set your goal to be something ridiculously small, like doing a push-up, then you can just do the push-up. And then while you're already in push-up position, you may find yourself doing 20 push-ups or 100 push-ups. But, or a 1,000. Right. But your goal is to do one, and so it's like, okay, why am I agonizing over doing one push-up? And then if you do one push-up and that's all you do, great. You met your goal. You know, you've done your habit that day. But, you know, if you do more than that, then then bonus, right? And so it's just kind of a mental hack to get into uh, whatever habit you want to build. So In two weeks, I'm going to yell at you because I drove to the gym every day and didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you so made it to the parking lot. That's there, good enough. Yeah, there <laughs> we go. But, yeah, so those are my picks. Victor, what are your picks? All right, I have two picks. The first one is I recently started playing board games and card games, and one of the games I really enjoy is a card game called Android Netrunner, and it's a two-player game from the creator of Magic the Gathering. And the game is basically it's asymmetric, asymmetrical game, so one player plays a hacker, and the other one plays a mega corporation, and you sort of fight, like hack and build servers and whatever. I really like it, and if you like board games and card games, and you like William Gibson and Cyberpunk in general, I think you should check it out. And my second and last pick is mechanical keyboards. Everyone these days into mechanical keyboards, and I think it's for, for a good reason. I think every programmer should give it a try and try to use a mechanical keyboard at least for a week or so. And if you're looking to buy one, you should check it out on massdrop.com. They have a lot of relatively cheap keyboards. Uh, and I'm done. All right. Cool. If people want to know more about what you're working on with Angular, where do they go to uh, check that out? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, and they can go to my blog, victorsarkin.com. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got, so we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Victor. It was terrific to talk, and yeah, this is one of those episodes where I'm going to have to go and deepen my uh, technical knowledge a little bit. It was very exciting to be here. I'm actually a big fan of GetChat.tv podcast in general, and this one in particular, so it was really cool. Oh, thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Vic. All right. We'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. 
They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 